Welcome to Our Soul, a podcast by Kelly Fox and Terry Williams from the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome back to Our Soul. And I'm Kelly. Um, Terry is not with me again. Terry is on vacation. And if you want to hear about why you should take your vacation and take time off, you can listen to our last episode where we talked about why that's important. But today, um, I'm here with Blythe Barno from Faith and Public Life, um, and we are going to have a great conversation today. Blythe, if you could introduce yourself, that would be wonderful. Hey, everyone. I'm Blythe Barno. My pronouns are she, her. I am a minister. I work with Faith and Public Life, and I'm living in the central uh, part of Ohio right now in Licking County. Awesome. So yeah, thank you for for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh my um, gosh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I this has been something that I've wanted to do for a while, um, especially because um, we did the restorative and transformative justice book club, and without even knowing it, like the <laughs> the one of the sections that I liked so much out of the uh, oh gosh, now the name is escaping my mind beyond oh, survival yeah beyond survival mm-hmm. was your piece um <laughs> and i just thought that was so great and then we got to have a conversation about that but um i'm just excited to have you on the podcast today um and that's that's a little bit about what i want to talk about today we did the restorative and transformative justice book club in the spring and now we've kind of moved into abolition and talking about mm-hmm what that looks like um and also what that looks like practically like how to how do we make abolition real in our everyday life um and i know a lot of your work at faith and public life has to do with harm reduction um and i'd love to hear more about your work with harm reduction and then we can talk about how that's related to uh the stuff we've been talking about yeah, yeah, I love it. And just so excited to get to be um, in this conversation with you. Love your work. And so harm reduction sometimes can, is misunderstood nowadays. And, you know, a lot of public health departments uh, and even sometimes law enforcement agencies have kind of co-opted the term harm reduction. Um, so just to give a quick background of what harm reduction Uh, in my understanding is, is harm reduction is a movement for social justice that was founded by and for people who use drugs and people who are engaged in sex work and really came to be in the 80s and 90s as a response to um, the HIV AIDS crisis and the incredible loss of life there. Uh, And I like to think, you know, in my head, I've I've done different sorts of work over the years, uh, but there's this very elaborate Venn diagram where everything kind of intersects and uh, transformative justice and harm reduction uh, are deeply connected. Uh, Harm reduction and uh, the work to abolish policing and um, carceral responses to human problems, uh, those are connected. Same with reproductive justice. Uh, and the desire to have sustainable communities and safe communities um, where you have autonomy over your body. Um, All of those things are connected. And um, that's one of the things that folks who have co-opted harm reduction 
don't take into consideration. Uh, they talk about harm reduction just as if it only pertains to very restrictive drug user health measures, as opposed to the roots of the movement, which said, hey, the state doesn't care about our people, so we have to care about our people. And um, the reason that people are experiencing so much harm around their occupation or around their substance use has to do with these larger systemic issues. Like the problem is not about personal choice. The problem is about the systemic environment that people are making those choices in, which of course maps on to all of those other movements uh, for justice. So um, yeah, it's the work of my heart, um, you know, and the reason that I have gotten involved in all of those movements is because either I myself or my family uh, has been impacted by them in some way. And I grew up in a home that had a lot of chaotic substance use. Um, and I saw the way that my mom was both, both impacted by systemic forces and not impacted by systemic forces. That later on I was like, oh, her whiteness and her ability to present as middle class, even though we weren't middle class, um, really protected her from some carceral impacts that other people experience. Um, you know, so I kind of saw how the drug war plays out and picks and chooses um, through my experience in my family, but also seeing that in uh, friends and family, other family that uh, I lost to a combination of overdose or incarceration or um, or suicide, which gets wrapped up in there yeah. as well. So, uh, and I think at the root of all of these movements, it's a deep held belief that people deserve better, uh, that people have innate dignity, innate autonomy, and that when we disrespect their autonomy, we disrespect their dignity. Mm -hmm. I feel like that really ties back to uh, like also the faith perspective um, that we both have this idea that people hold innate dignity uh, because they are like a part of creation. Um, and yeah. I, I think like if if I've learned anything from the studying that I've done over the last years, um, but especially in the um, book club that I've done, is that like people are not disposable and um if we can wrap around our wrap our heads around as a society the non-disposability of people um and also mm -hmm. the like if we as a society could break away from um an individualistic mindset into a more community mindset like i truly believe things could be so much better and that mm -hmm. these harms that restrictive uh laws claim to try to solve um could actually be solved by like being in community with each other i often find yeah. myself saying like uh, uh if this is truly your goal here is like a better way that that could be done yeah um where less people are harmed yeah, yeah absolutely and you know i i never really expected to end up a minister <laughs> And there are people in my life, uh, you know, it's kind of a 50-50 split where 50% are like, what? <laughs> How does that make any sense for you? And then 50% are like, we saw it coming, you know. <laughs> um, and 
so when I went into seminary, of course, you know, a lot of people who've gone to seminary have this experience of thinking that you're going in for one reason and then uh, the real reason you're there appears around like year two when you have to do field ed usually. (laughs) Um, And that was really true for me. Um, But I went into seminary as an organizer. Mm -hmm. I was living in the Bay Area. I knew I wanted to come back home to Ohio. And I thought having a deeper understanding, particularly of Christian traditions, would help me as an organizer here. Uh, And of course that's true. But really, when I got in, I realized that there was a deep desire for spiritual care, um, both for myself and for the communities that I was connected to. And a lot of the communities I'm connected to don't, wouldn't consider themselves spiritual, definitely not religious. And so there's this process of translation that you have to do between kind of the jargon and seminary and how people, you know, talk in the rest of the world. <laughs> um, And for me, uh, what I came to find uh, as true for myself is that this concept of dignity and this concept of divinity are related. Mm -hmm. Like that spark that you feel within yourself when you feel you're living into your dignity or somebody's respecting your dignity, that piece of you that lights up for me is that spark of the divine that lives within each of us. And it just has helped me to remain clear that when people disrespect other people's dignity, they're disrespecting God within Mm -hmm. them. Um, And there's no room for that. That's not real faith. Um, You know, anyway, I can be sassy about it on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of faith is maybe a more generous way of saying it. I think Um, also, like, um, you know, I, I think a lot about how you can't disconnect um the faith from like your you can't disconnect faith from public life like those two (laughs) i didn't mean to say that but it didn't happen um anyway but uh you know you can't be in the church on sunday saying one thing about loving each other and that everybody is in the same in the eyes of god or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and then go out into the streets the next day and tell person tell a person that they don't have a right to choose like what their life look like looks like, or force yeah. them to live in a certain way, um, and yeah. all of that. And so I think that a lot of the times it's really it, this this mental separation um, between uh, what is holy and then what is like the the real but the mm-hmm. the real is holy the personal is political yeah. like faith exists yeah. in everything and um i i keep thinking about there's this book that i read as a kid um which it's completely unrelated to this topic but it's called boys are waffles girls are spaghetti and i think about it a lot <laughs> um i think about like so basically it was talking about like how in guys minds they're very compartmentalized and like separate things out and girls are very connected um and see everything like together in this jumbled mess um and i think that the spaghetti thing is honestly <laughs> better um and like mm-hmm compartmentalizing is not um like helpful to actually helping people to um you know making things better you talked earlier about like how um like specifically with substance use it's not just about 
one's personal choice, but also about the oppressive systems that they're in. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of the times, well-meaning people even, like, will uh, Mm -hmm. think that, like, oh, if we just change the personal choice, then that will fix the problem. But, like, that's not Mm -hmm. what's going to fix the problem. It's the oppressive system. If you can... If you can change the the system that you're in, then that's what can fix the the internal problem. It's almost like yeah. I think of like how specific uh, fish care instructions are. I have a very strange mind. Um, <laughs> anyway, but like you know how like with certain fishes, there has to be like a certain amount of salt in the water. The water has to be a specific temperature. Those kinds of things, or else the the fish will get sick. And like I don't know if they give fish medicine, but it, like you could probably mm-hmm. give the fish medicine or give the fish more food or whatever, but that doesn't fix the problem of the water that they're swimming in. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. And different fish need different levels of yeah. all of those yeah. things, but it's not one situation for all fish. And sticking with the, the animal theme, like a lot of our <laughs> understandings around substance use, you know, like usually when people think about substance use, there's this underlying understanding that some drugs, not all drugs, that's why there's like soft drugs and hard drugs, but hard drugs have this chemical hook where you take it once and you're you're hooked forever and you be just you just become controlled by this substance. And that is a theory that was um, that came out of research that happened, I think it was in the 1930s. Don't quote me on that, but in the early 1900s where a researcher put a rat in a cage and that rat had two water bottles. One just had water and one had water with morphine in it. And after the rat uh, drank from the water bottle that had morphine in it, it went back continuously to the morphine to the point of death. And so this theory came about that was like, wow, this, this substance had such control over this rat that this rat just killed itself for the for this um for the substance fast forward a couple of decades to a researcher named bruce alexander who was who was looking at this and thought well wait a minute you put a rat alone in a cage what would happen if this rat had everything that this rat needed and so he created an experiment that he called Rat Park, <laughs> where it was this big system where there was many rats and lots of space and enough food to eat and things that were fun to do. And, um, you know, there was rat sex and rat pleasure <laughs> and all of these things. You know, there, there was a fullness of life um, in this Rat Park. And there was water bottles, some that had water in it and some that had water and morphine and not a single rat went back to the morphine to the point of death. Not a single one. There was about 10% of rats that went back um, habitually to the morphine, but it was 10% of that whole population. Mm -hmm. And so his kind of theory out of that was that it's not so much the substance, it's the cage that you put people Mm in. And that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety necessarily. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. And there's a great book called, um, it's a slightly dated now, but it's called Chasing the Scream 
and it was written by an author named Johan Hari, and he talks a little bit about this research and the history of the drug war, but it's very narrative and it's very easy to read. Like if you're not trying to sit down and read rat research, (laughs) you don't have to worry about it. It's going to be fun to read, (laughs) interesting to read, um, and really suggest uh, checking that out. But but yeah, that's really what we're talking about is what cage are we putting people in? And so when we see people who are experiencing substance use, usually the response is you have to stop taking that substance uh, immediately or we're going to put you alone in a cage. <laughs> and, and so it just doesn't make sense how we approach it. And we're, we, there's something about, you know, like in faith communities, sometimes we talk about like a narrowness of the heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a little bit this waffle spaghetti mm-hmm. thing. It's like when we look, we, we're looking so narrowly mm-hmm. at what is happening in a person's life that we actually miss the hope. Mm-hmm. We miss the opportunities for transformation. And, uh, you know, for example, there's this story where a man was living on the streets and he wanted to gain access to affordable housing and he used methamphetamine and the housing program said okay you can have this housing um but you have to be sober before you can access it and he was like okay well part of why he is using substances is because he lives on the street and the most dangerous time to be on the street is at night when your body is subject to attack, your personal, uh, limited personal property is subject um, to being taken. And so he was using methamphetamine to stay Mm. up at night. So because he was unhoused, but then he wasn't allowed access to housing because of this, um, this resource, this, um, it's not even just a coping mechanism, it's a tool for his survival. And we only see very this very narrow thing, which is methamphetamine equals chemical hook, which equals something is, you know, controlling you, and so you have to sever that because it's bad. Um, and there's so much white supremacy logic kind of thing that's in there about the, you know, the sort of power and uh, that an individual is supposed to have over themselves and their circumstances, and uh, there's just so much in that perception. Uh, that needs to get undone. And along with that, like, when I think that there's also this kind of expectation that, you know, you were talking about how not all fish care is the same. And this expectation that like, because my life looks like this, this is and it's good for me, then obviously, this is the good life for everyone. And that's not necessarily true. Um, And that that doesn't mean that because someone's uh what someone's current situation looks like for them and how they are caring for themselves and what they need in the environment that they're in right now that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have access to things that they need you know uh like food and shelter and um just care in general and you know even if what and to kind of connect this to also abortion care uh, you know, even if somebody doesn't want to uh, uh, have an abortion, that doesn't mean that somebody else who wants to have an abortion should be forced to choose what somebody who's want, who's a parent right. chooses. Like, it's, yeah. 
just like the fish, um, everyone should be yeah. able to choose like what um, what kind of life they get to live um, without having those restraints of no, you have to fit into this box. Um, I also think a lot about like how you don't you don't know what it's like to be in a certain position until you are actually in that position, or you don't like understand the possibilities until you are living them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh, like, I think there are so many more possibilities than we allow ourselves to actually explore. And when we explore those mm-hmm. possibilities, we can find infinite ways of, um, you know, having living a good life and um, living into the dignity of humanity um, that may not look how we expect it. And, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah, and there's something really healing about that, you know, like, I, I was not born a harm reductionist. I'll tell you that. Like, seeing people in my life struggle with substances um, and the impacts of both the substance use itself, but also, um, and sometimes more damagingly, um, you know, the kind of carceral state's reaction uh, to their substance use or lack of housing or lack of jobs or, you know, all of that. For a long time, I was just like, it's the substance's fault. It's you need to keep drugs away from all of my people and then everybody would be fine. I was very, I wasn't exactly straight edge, you know, I didn't have the X's on the hands, <laughs> but I was very wary of substances um, because I saw all of this harm in my, my community. And what happened there was there is this sense and it's something that people also said to me is that if the people I cared about would just walk away from the substances, if they just had enough willpower, if they just had enough whatever, um, if they just cared about themselves or they just cared about me enough, they would walk away. And it was all this focus on personal responsibility and personal power. Uh, And so when people first started talking to me about harm reduction, uh, my mentor really pushed me on it. And we came into the conversation because we were working at a, a um, survivor advocacy program and we ran a trans, we ran different housing programs and community programs for survivors of domestic violence. And um, people had to be sober to come into our housing. So people are experiencing severe violence and we were telling them that they couldn't be safe until they abandoned their coping mechanism. <laughs> and that didn't make any sense. So she was pushing me on it and I was really resistant. I was like, I'm not trying to help people use drugs. I'm not trying to do this. You know, this, this idea of enabling um, really came up and she, you know, just have such deep love and gratitude for her because she was consistent with me. And she said exactly what you just said, which is your family is more than this. Your story is more than this. And you deserve a bigger picture of what's happening. You deserve to be able to put down some of the baggage that you're carrying, where it was like, you know, isolation from family members, isolation from former partners and people that I loved um, because of substance use. And she told me that I deserved healing around those things. And so she didn't give up on me and I came to understand things differently and I started to see how I had had that narrowness where I looked just so narrowly about what happened 
And as the picture started to get bigger, there was a sense of healing um, that happened for me because the story was no longer about people I love loving drugs more than me, which is something that people actually say to, <laughs> to people, um, that, that there was a fullness um, and I could see how much the loved ones in my life had fought for their own dignity, had fought for survival around different things, and that it was, it was that fight that made things complicated and messy. It wasn't their lack of care. And so, you know, even uh, I lost a former partner to overdose in 2004 before anybody was calling anything a crisis. Um, and his death really kicked off a series of deaths in my life where I lost about eight friends mm. in a year um, to a combination of overdose, suicide, and substance stuff. Um, and also the war was in there too. Um, and all I saw was, okay, he was using substances in a hotel room. Somebody was with him. And then they left him. And they just left him to die. Mm. And I hated that person. I hated the person that was there, hated them for leaving. And it wasn't until 10 years later when I was working with my mentor, now in a harm reduction program, uh, that that person also died of an overdose, died alone. And I'd had enough uh, education and emotional support and working through my stuff that I could see a fuller picture. And the fuller picture was that that person left left him that night, and as soon as they left, they called the paramedics. And part of why they left is because there was no Good Samaritan law in Ohio. Mm. Nobody, neither of them had ever heard of Narcan, which is a medication that can reverse overdose. They'd never heard of it, let alone have it. And this person was a single parent to a child, and they knew that if they went to jail, that child would go into foster care and that person intimately knew what that system was like. So there's actually many, many choices that are being made in a moment like that that are all um, created by these larger systems. But then we just narrow in on this small thing, which is that that person was heartless and mm -hmm. left somebody to die. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not at all true. That person was forced to choose between somebody's life and their own freedom and that is an impossible choice mm -hmm. that we're still forcing people to make every day in Ohio. Thank you for, for sharing that story. And um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that there are numerous impossible choices that, uh, you know, people who have not lived that experience will not know. Um, and mm -hmm. and like you said, you know, putting this, this burden to, uh, you know, need to uh, be sober or to be whatever to be able to live a life of dignity and um, to not have you know things stripped away from you because of mm -hmm. whatever choice you made it's it's just a lot of impossible decisions and I feel like that's something we've been talking a lot a lot on this podcast um, mm. and it's just not it's not okay and it, it doesn't solve the problem yeah. and I think that's a lot of what um, our conversations have been about in transformative our transformative and restorative justice book club and then now in the abolition book club um, and just talking about how 
the system needs to change. Like the this the way this current system is isn't going to uh, save lives and keep people from being able to or keep people from having to make impossible choices. Um, the whole the whole system needs to change. And I was kind of um, we're we're about out of time, but I did want to share mm-hmm. like kind of what was going through my head while I was listening to you. Um, we, you know, I kind of think of um, the need to be sober before you can have access to these uh, life-giving resources as kind of like mm-hmm. you've had you've had some help uh, carrying your luggage, your you know your baggage. We talk about like this bag. I feel like it's a common a metaphor in mm-hmm. like faith communities. <laughs> but if we're carrying this baggage, and you know, if you're doing or using substances or whatever, maybe that's helped you carry the baggage for so long. And then now people who are on the other side who have access to resources that will help you carry your baggage in a, in a more uh, sustainable way uh, say that you have to get rid of all of your help and carry your mm-hmm. luggage over there to, to get access to those resources. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's heavy <laughs> and it's like, especially with you, when you have a lot of baggage, it's impossible to carry that without any assistance. And, um, I think, yeah. you know, that's, that's what the current system asks us to do and asks people yeah. to do is to, is to carry over, mm-hmm. um, which is just impossible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's this, you know, Erica Paulette who founded Faith in Harm Reduction, which is an amazing organization uh, that folks should check out. She has, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, I won't say it as beautifully as she does, but, you know, she basically says that harm reduction is about moving away from judging people for what they're carrying uh, towards standing in awe of how they're carrying it. Mm. Um, and helping to kind of pick some of that up with folks um, and that there's not um, there's not these rigid conditions. It's not, well, I'll help you carry that if you do X, Y, and Z, especially as people of faith, like most of our faiths compel us towards generosity, towards hospitality, towards a largeness of heart. And um, that is not in line with saying, well, I'll hold that bag if you do X, Y, LMNOP first, mm-hmm. you know, the generous response is, oh, you want you want me to carry one? I'll carry two. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the response. And I think all of these different movements that we've talked about today are summed up there of like, how do we, how do we sit in the mess with people? Yeah. How do we pay attention to what is really happening? Uh, and how do we respond with what we're being told is needed instead of what we think is needed? Mm-hmm. Um, and most people, especially around harm um, that has happened, whether that's you know physical violence, community harm, sexual violence, um, drug-related harm, all of those, usually people aren't just compelled immediately to a carceral response. Usually there is something more complicated there uh and people are being told they only have one choice Mm -hmm. and all of these movements are saying no you are so deeply loved that you have so many more choices Mm -hmm. than this and we'll help you sit and figure out what the best one is like that's the root of all of this yeah well i feel like i could keep talking to you about this for 
Same. multiple hours. Um, um, but Blythe, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today and just sharing your story and uh, your passion for harm reduction. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, so good to be with you. Awesome. Thanks. All right, take care. Remember, you can always check out previous editions of Our Soul on our website at ohiorcrc.org forward slash podcast. And while you're there, feel free to look around at all the other super cool content we have to offer to help you faithfully speak out for abortion access and reproductive freedom all across Ohio.